Today's portion is terumah, which means contribution. It's taken from the place where God is speaking to Moses in the mountain, giving him the vision of what the tabernacle will look like, of all the things he wants to do, how it will be put together, how it will be set up, all of these details. And he tells him to allow the people to bring in their contributions to be able to do that. He could easily make this a message on offerings, but that's not what the message is about. The contributions that we make make us also a part of what God is doing. And the focal point, some people will look at these chapters in Shemot in Exodus 25 through 27. And they'll look at that and they'll say, oh, here's all the details about how the tabernacle is to be put together. All the intricate details, all of the working and how large and how small each thing is and all of that. And there's messages within the framework of that. But there is something in this as I was reading it that really stood out for me. And it was the intention that God has for us. The title for today's message is Don't Let God Go Homeless. Now, we see this picture of somebody taking their bags of stuff, all of their things, and going down a street without a home to go to. But the idea of don't let God go homeless, can God be homeless? He created everything. And yet when we look at some of the passages we'll see today, he references the fact that in some ways he was homeless, looking for a home. Might even look like this one here. Show us that next one. It was a toss-up. Finding a place to sleep, but not having a place to dwell in. We don't think about this in relation to God being homeless, but I want to show you how God has been homeless and how we can help assist him in a housing project where he can have a place to dwell. So as we look at this passage in Shemot, in Exodus 25, verse 1 through 9, listen to these words. Hashem said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel to take up a collection for me, accept the contribution from anyone who wholeheartedly wants to give. The contribution you are to take from them is to consist of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, yarn, fine linen, uh, goat's hair, tanned skins, ram skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spice for the anointing, oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other stones to be set for the ritual vest and breastplate. And you can look at this and go through all the details that are there, but I want you to see what is most important to God. It says, they are to make me, in verse 8, a sanctuary so that I may live among them. This was a tabernacle. It was a place to offer up sacrifice. It was all of those things, but it was the way that God initiated for him to make his first real home among his people. It was the place of his dwelling. He said, make me a sanctuary. Now, you could take that a couple ways. He was making a sanctuary for him to dwell in, which is what the context is speaking of. But he also is saying, make me a sanctuary. 
make him to be our sanctuary, the place that we go to experience the fullness of what it is God wants to impart to us because most people are living well below what it is that God has made available to us. And so when we read this, we see that it says, make a sanctuary that I may live among them. You are to make it according to everything I show you. The design of the tabernacle and the design of its furnishings. This is how you are to make it. This is like God's dream house. This is a dream house, but not like a mansion where you're the only one there. He wants housemates. He wants roommates. He wants others to be a part of it because what he is building is a family. What he is building is to reestablish the relationship that he started from the beginning when he created Adam and Eve and how by sin we rebelled and chose a different roommate. If you think about it, they had everything accessible and they had a life in the presence of the Lord and they allowed the serpent, the adversary, to suggest a different living arrangement. He became the roommate and humankind took on his persona. Everyone became accusers of brothers. Everyone began to find scapegoat. But God was bringing back everything full circle. And think about this. Don't let God go homeless. God's desire throughout the scripture over and over again is talking about how he wants to make his home in us, how he wants to come and dwell among us, how we will be his people, he will be our God. He'll walk in the midst of us. Even from the time of Bereshit in Genesis, when he said that he walked in the cool of the night, in the cool of the day, there was something about being in the presence of the Lord that was an amazing thing. And him having his creation there as well. That we are his children. And he wants us to have a relationship. Not a strained relationship. But he wants us to be able to do this. One of the things it mentioned in verse 16. It says, into the ark you are to put the testimony. Which I am about to give you. Now, normally you would think if you're going to collect something and you're going to put it in a hope chest or you're going to put it into uh, a place to, for good keeping, you are celebrating something that God, you're giving testimony of what already has taken place. But God says here that you are to put the testimony that I'm about to give you. They were getting ready for the biggest and most amazing journey of their life. They saw the hand of God move in deliverance power in bringing them out of Egypt and out of slavery. But what he was bringing them into was so much bigger. And it was so much more difficult for them to fully grasp what it was. And so they became rebellious in so many ways. But I want to point out this other thing. I said God's housing project and also the idea uh, of, a, of a home is where you live. And you know, one of the factors that we talk about when we see pictures like this, what we think about are people who are down on their luck. But isn't it interesting that Yeshua made it a point in Matthew 25 to care for the homeless, to care for those who were hungry, to care for those who had no clothing, 
to be mindful of all those around us so that everyone has a dwelling place. And the most dramatic dwelling place is the one that God has made available for us. Think about this. When, when Paul was on the road and was knocked to the ground by the power of God, and he said, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said that he was the people he was persecuting. He identified with them as if it was him suffering as well. When there are people around us in need, we have a certain obligation as followers of him to do as he did and to reach out to those in need and to do these different things. Marlene and others in the congregation have started some of these different activities that we're doing in bringing food to the hungry and clothing and all of these other activities. So this is also a part of it, but we may not think of the fact that Yeshua was homeless. But I want to read a couple of passages to you. You know, he says, do it according to design. He had an idea of what he wanted. But look at what it says in Luke 9. In Luke 9, the key verse, in verse 57, it says, as they were traveling on the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds pretty convincing. Sounds very dramatic. Yeshua answered him, in a very clear and unusual way. The foxes have holes. The birds flying about have nests. But the Son of Man has no home of his own. He's homeless. Follow me? We'll follow you wherever you go, but I'm homeless. I have no place. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no home of his own. To another, he said, follow me. But the man replied, sir, first let me go away and bury my father. Yeshua said, let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, sir, but first let me say goodbye to the people at home. Getting ready to leave home to go to a homeless focus, but following the one who created everything. To him, he said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and keeps looking back is fit to serve in the kingdom of God. Now, I'll tell you this. We have had so many little snowstorms coming one after the other. Plowing has become a very popular pastime for most people. This, this, I don't know if you call it popular, but you've got to do it. Now, if you keep looking back to see what you haven't done, you'll never keep moving forward and getting the snow out of the way. We've got to move forward, keep pressing forward. Put our hands to the plow or to the shovel and keep looking forward, not looking back. Not looking and saying, ah, this is just too much here. Hey, Chuck, you want to come by and take this out for me? Or, hey, kids, you want to make some money? <laughs> there is something about pressing forward. Now, I'll tell you something else, too. When it comes to houses, when it comes to homes, my daughter and my son-in-law are, are just in the process of buying a new home, and they're going to do renovations to it. And I'm, I'm thinking that when you have a home, 
when you start to do these different things, there are a lot of things that happened. You know, it's having something that is your own, but it also is not just a house. It becomes a home because of the warmth and the love that's in that place. God is not just wanting to create houses. He's not just trying to create a network, a community of just houses, but of homes, of places where love and family and relationship are developed. And so this is all a part of God's plan. You know, there was another place where, uh, it, where he says in Luke 2, uh, in verse 7, when he was, talking, he was talking about the birth of Messiah, it says, while they were there, the time, verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her first child, a son. It's a boy. <laughs> okay, Yeshua. <laughs> it reminds me of a joke. Uh, years ago, they had these different, I guess sidetracked for a moment. They had these, uh, the fry, uh, fry group. It was, they did, they did funny stuff. And there was a point where they had Richard Nixon and Billy Graham having a conversation. And uh, he comes in and he says, hello, Dickie. He says, oh, he says, <laughs> he says, um, the old crusader you. You know, he just was approaching him. And he says, you know, I was watching the film about Jesus. And I fell asleep. And I wondered if you could tell me how it ended. He said, well, uh, he had a son and they called him Jesus. He said, praise God, then it was a boy. <laughs> You know, it was a funny thing back growing up, especially since at that time, I never paid attention to anything to do with Yeshua. Uh, I didn't even know he was Jewish. But aside from that, I always thought that was, every time I come to this place where it says, and he bore a son, her first son. Wow, you know, this was important. So anyway, probably a very bad joke, but hey, what can I tell you? But here it says this, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to their first child, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and laid him down in a feeding trough because there was no space for them in the living quarters. There was no room in the inn. No room in the inn. Now think about this. How many times have you gone to places where you go to an inn that's been here from the 1700s, and it says... George Washington slept here, you know? And you say, wow, George Washington slept here. And I'm sleeping here? Wow, I'm sleeping in the same room that George Washington slept in. It was the person who gave more credence to the room. The room was just a room. But imagine the innkeeper who relegated them to the sukkah, and that was not a big deal. It wasn't, again, it wasn't because they were poor and she was pregnant, that they wouldn't let her in. It wasn't a prejudice thing. It was a time when everyone was gathering in Jerusalem and everything overflowed in the area to make room and they were in sukkahs. But imagine what the innkeeper who said to them, I'm sorry, no vacancies. We don't have room here. What would he have done if he understood who it was that actually was there so that for generations to come, he could have written down in Hebrew, Messiah slept here. <laughs> I don't know. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder who it is that you're with. You know, 
oftentimes it says we entertain angels unaware. We don't always know what it is God's doing. And do you remember that movie about the lottery, uh, uh, about the couple, the policeman and the waitress, and he offered her half of it and all the things that happened. And at the end of it, when they were losing everything, they came in and there was a homeless man who came in and they just fed him. They treated him in a very special way. There wasn't anything to note that was special about him. He was in need. They took him in and they fed him. What they didn't know was he was the reporter and he was undercover and he took pictures. And the next day in the paper, it talked about what had happened and the care and the compassion that they showed. And you see how God worked it out for them. It's a beautiful story. There's also another thing, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. There was a homeless man on the street and everybody was walking past him. Nobody paid him any mind. You know how you kind of just kind of look off like you're doing something else, not making eye contact. And one woman came up and gave him part of her sandwich or part of something. She gave him some food and he thanked her. What she didn't know was it was Richard Gere who was trying to get into the style and feel of homelessness because he was going to be doing a movie about homelessness. And so all of a sudden she said, it was Richard Gere, he's my favorite. <laughs> she didn't know who it was. It was the fact that he said what amazed him was in that garb, in that look, he was ignored by everybody. Now I wanna to suggest to you that Yeshua doesn't always come in a dramatic way. He was meek and lowly in heart. We find rest for our soul. It says, a bruised reed you will not break. In Isaiah 53, it says he wasn't beautiful to look upon. We look upon him whom we've pierced. All of the elements, the beatings, and the way that he was abused, all of those things did not take into consideration who he really was. And he didn't try to present and say, hey, this is unfair. He came homeless. He came to bring hope to all of us who were not living in the tabernacle of God's presence. He saw us as the ones homeless without a shepherd. And he came in and he said, how often, when he wept over Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not respond. Sometimes people on the streets that are homeless, you say, well, let's get you into a shelter. They don't want to go to a shelter, some of them, because they've been robbed of the little they have in shelters or abused or whatever it is. But he looks at us abused, broken, and says, I can work with this. I can work with you. I am going, he says in John 14. He says in John 14, when, don't let yourself be disturbed. Trust in God and trust in me. In my father's house are many places to live. If there weren't, I would have told you because I am going there to prepare a place for you. 
since I am going and preparing a place for you, I will return and take you with me so that where I am, you may be also. Furthermore, you know where I'm going and you know the way there. Comes back to that song. Thomas, Toma, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? We haven't got a clue. Yeshua said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because you have known me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him. In fact, you have seen him. There's an identifying element when we're living with somebody. There is an identifying element that carries over for that. We talked before last week about about the influence of crowds. And what we lend ourselves to is what we become. What we hang with is how we seem to develop. When we are living in the house of the adversary, we become like an adversary. It's one of the reasons why these days everybody's attitude is not looking for solutions, but looking to blame. Blame is not going to produce results except decay and destruction. And the modus operandi of the adversary is to divide and conquer. If people would stop worrying about what the differences are and reach out anyway, I mention this often, but when Yeshua was on the execution stake, he didn't declare from there saying, this is not fair, I'm innocent, get me an attorney, I'll sue you, Mr. Roman soldiers. I will sue Caesar if I have to. He didn't do any of that. He didn't say it was unfair. He looked out at the people and understood that whatever state of suffering he was going through was worth what it will produce when he looked out at the people who in a way might have felt a sense of awe at what happened. Those who were against him looked and they were probably gloating over the fact that he, you know, where is his God now? And uh, uh, physicians, save yourself. He could heal others, but he can't save himself. He could have called a legion of angels and delivered himself if that was his motive. But he looked out at those who were looking at him as something like a homeless person, having no respect and belittled by them brutalized. And he looked out and said, if I could paraphrase a little bit, I see a whole lot of people homeless. I see a whole lot of people who have run away from the home we have in the Lord. And I want to bring them back. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He wasn't saying, I'm just going to die now. He said, it is finished. He knew that all of the provisions were putting into play a hope and a heritage for all those who he saw as spiritually homeless. And he wanted to bring them back to himself. You know, when you look through this chapter 14, he tells them he's going to prepare a place for us. But look at what he also says here, a little bit further down. He talks about bringing a comforter. 
Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. There is something intrinsically connected to being able to do what God says to be able to experience what God wants to work in our lives. But look at what he says here. He says, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforting counselor like me, the spirit of truth, to be with you forever, meaning he will live with you. The world cannot receive him. Why? Because they think they're already set up in their own palatial palace, the building of their own hands, the building of their own works, the building that is always looking to tear down somebody else instead of build up others, seeing what is really going on. But he says, they can't see it. Can't receive him because it neither sees nor knows him. Interesting that he says, you know me and you've seen me. Knowing him is what really gives us the ability to see who he is and how he cares for us. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And he says, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees or knows him. You know him because he is staying with you and will be united with you. Staying with you also implies that we're living together that we are in the same household of God, that we are part of a family of God. And so when he says, because he is staying with you and will be united with you, I will not leave you orphans. I am coming to you. There's that passage in Song of Solomon where he says that he was... He was standing and wanting to come in. And she says, I've taken off my shoes. It's not convenient. And then she was moved and went and he was gone. She searched for him, couldn't find him. Maybe that's how we feel sometimes. We've looked for God and God wasn't to be found. Maybe it was inconvenient for us, but he still was there making himself known. In the book of Revelation, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to me, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me, having dinner together in the home, in the family, in the group, opening up and allowing him access. This is what he wants to do. He says, I stand at the door knocking. Will you open up? See, we don't want to let God go homeless. He wants to make each one of us his home his dwelling place, to impart to us everything that it implies. He then says, he will remind you of everything I have said to you. He says to him in verse 27, what I am leaving you is shalom, peace. I'm giving you my shalom. I don't give the way the world gives. Don't let yourself be upset or frightened. You heard me tell you, I am leaving and I will come back to you. If you love me, you would have been glad that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. He says, the adversary is coming. He has no claim on me. We've not lived together. He tried to coerce me into some sort of a business venture. He offered me everything in that time in the wilderness. And I said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live. 
He was unwilling to compromise and take on the adversary as a roommate. He was an adversary. But he did what he saw the Father doing, and we need to do the same. He has no claim in me. Rather, this is happening so that the world may know that I love the Father and that I do as the Father has commanded me. Get up. Let's go. Let's get going. There is something very powerful about all of that. You know, one of the things he also said in Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, there is a passage where it says, verse 23, now this is how the copies of the heavenly things had to be purified. But the heavenly things themselves require better sacrifices than those. This was sort of like the tabernacle and even what, what Moses saw in the heavenlies. This is like the architectural drawings, the models that were built up to show what it will look like, what it would be. Do it according to the pattern that God said. But the actual original heavenly house is accessible to us. He said that where I am there, you may be also. He wasn't talking about going to heaven after you die. He said that where I am, you will be also. He was always in the Father's house. He was always in the presence of Father. He was always doing what he saw the Father doing. And as we obey and do the things that he tells us and shows us, we allow him access and full residence within us. When that happens, it is something very powerful. It says, verse 24, for Messiah has entered a holiest place, which is not man-made. You can't create this by yourself. And merely a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, in order to appear now on our behalf in the very presence of God. And I like this also, he says in verse 28, so also Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for his return. You know, we read that passage in Yohanan in John 14. It's also reminiscent of what happens in a Jewish wedding. The groom always prepares a home for his bride. He does whatever it takes to get that home ready, to bring her into that place. Everything taken care of, everything prepared. And part of the preparation as our groom was to lay his life down for his bride so that he could go and prepare a place for us that where he is, the place that he walked with the Father, we could walk as well. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, is also in this chapter. And greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. There is something about allowing that family relationship to develop and for us to understand what it is that God is wanting to accomplish and do. You know, even in the passage, I'm gonna close with this, I think. In the passage in the Haftorah portion, which is 1 Kings chapter 5 and 6, there is this statement as he was beginning to build in chapter 6. Think about this. Verse 1 says, It was in the 480th year after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt. 
In the fourth year of Solomon's, Shlomo's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of Hashem. The house which King Shlomo built for Hashem. He was building a house for God. You remember what happened when David talked about building it? He says, you'll build a house for me? The earth is his footstool. He wants to build us up as a dwelling place. He says, we are lively stones brought together by God, a building not made with hands. We become the dwelling place of the Lord and it's evident whether he's home or not. The world around us has their different structures, feeble in many ways, thinking they're palaces. But when it comes down to it, they're beggarly. They're the ones homeless. They're the ones without the connection. And we are not gloating over that. We are to be those who want to restore, to bring them home, to bring them home. It's a very powerful thing. And what does he say? Here's the part, similar to what Yeshua said. Verse 11. After all of this was going on, I didn't notice there was a spiral staircase that went up to the middle floor and onto the third floor, verse eight. But look what, a little bit further after all of the descriptions of this, the beams, the cedar, verse 11. Then this word of Hashem came to Shlomo, to Solomon. Verse 12. Concerning this house, which you are building, if you will live according to my regulations, follow my rulings and observe all my mitzvot and live by them, then I will establish with you my promise that I made to David your father. I will live in it among the people of Israel and I will not abandon my people Israel. God is saying that when he becomes a roommate, when he comes in, he is looking to not abandon us, but to do whatever it takes to get us reacclimated to what it means to be home finally, to come home to the Lord and to experience the blessing that he has. Don't let God go homeless. Let him make you a home, you into his home. Because he understands and views that we're the ones homeless. We're the ones in need of returning to him that he goes to prepare a place like the groom does and then receives us to himself, opens it up for his bride to be taken care of, to come in and live together. One other thing in the book of Revelation, there's an interesting passage here. People always talk about New Jerusalem descending. But you know what's interesting? In verse 9 of Revelation 21, it says this, one of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me off in the spirit in the top of a great high mountain and showed me the holy city. Yerushalayim coming down out of heaven from God. You know what that is talking about? He is describing not the place. I'll show you the bride. The bride 
he describes as Jerusalem descending. He describes the details and the quality of work that is in this Jerusalem that is descending from heaven as the bride. He says, I'll show you the bride. And then he shows new Jerusalem descending. Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, making his home and habitation with us. And all of these things are so that God's Shekhinah, his manifest presence, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, would give light and the lamp is the lamb. God wants to make his home in us. This is what he wants. And sometimes the adversary will give us illusions. Don't mess with them. They're not of the same caliber as you. They're the peons. Forget about them. You're somebody important. Homeless and don't know it. Remember the man who was a beggar who went into Jacob's bosom and the man who ridiculed him before died. And he said, just let him, let him touch a little water. To... And he said, you have Moses. He says, send him back so my brothers will know. All of it is disclosed. It's available. It's there. We have to have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. We have to have ears to hear, not just look at architectural drawings of what sounds like a good thing to do in a, in a DYI, do it, your, do it yourself. D, DIY? Do it yourself. That's it. DIY. God doesn't want us to do it ourselves, but he wants us to cooperate so that he could do for us what we could never do on our own. Remember when he said, you said, I'm rich and have need of nothing. And you don't know how beggarly you are. You don't know how poor you are. You are fooled by the things that you have and think that determines your wealth and who you, who you are and what you own. And you don't realize how homeless you are. We should look with compassion on those who are physically homeless, those in need. But we need to be able to be a mouthpiece for God to bring God's family home. Whoever will, let him come. But we need to demonstrate that Messiah is resident within us. Our actions show that we are influenced by him. Like the disciples, they took note that they had been with Yeshua. There was something authoritative about it. Not like authoritarian, but there was something that represented that they spoke with authority because they had been with Yeshua. Who are you with? Who are we with? If we spend all our time arguing and blaming and accusing, we're of our father a different roommate, the adversary, who is the accuser of the brothers. We need to be those who look to rescue out of the, snatch out of the fire, to rescue those who are down, to be able to set at liberty those that are bound, to set the captives free. Lord, we thank you so much for all of the provisions that you made, for the housewarming things that you do, for the housing project that you have in mind that is not limited, but is for everyone. Lord, that you could have all of these places. A home is where we live. 
A home is where we allow you to live within us so that we could live to the fullest measure as we allow you to come in. Lord, we don't want you to be homeless. There is a vacancy here for us. Lord, we ask you to come in. We have tried ourselves. We've decorated everything within our home to reflect who we think we are. But Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We repent of our own house building actions. Our do-it-yourself approach to life. And it has left us flat. Lord, we repent of our sins. And we ask you to come in and transform our hearts. Take residence within us, not just as a place to stay, but a place to impact our lives and everybody that we come in contact with. That you would make us a sanctuary for you, that you would make it to be a place where you can live among us, in us, through us. Make yourself known. Bring deliverance. And just as Yeshua laid his life down for everyone, so we can simply ask him to come in. And if you're listening and you just simply want to begin this building project, say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I ask Yeshua to come in and take over as the architect of my life, to come in and transform my life. I've made a mess of it, and now I need a messianic to come in and make it whole. Lord, we ask you to transfer us from a mess to messianic, from a place of self to a place where you are set up to reign in us. Lord, make yourself known. Lord, we don't want to let you be homeless. We open up our hearts and say, come in and make your home in us. And set us free from spiritual homelessness. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for all of your provisions. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know what's nice also? You don't have to wait until it's all over to experience the heavenly kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. God has this all accessible to us in this world and that which is to come. Let him build us up together.